At the time of recording, hundreds and possibly thousands of civilians have been killed during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And more than 2.5 million Ukrainians have fled the country. The Russian army has been accused of war crimes after bombing a maternity hospital in the south. Allies of the Ukrainian president say that Russia will only back down if Europe bans the import of Russian oil and gas. Because the Russian Federation is rich in such natural resources and its economy is based on the export of oil, gas and coal. Stop buying fossil fuel, it will stop funding this war. Surely Ukraine has taught us one thing, that if we turn a blind eye to authoritarian rulers, allow them to use fossil fuels to fuel their wars of conflict, it's simply not right that we argue, well, we have to be pragmatic because these are our so-called allies. I think this has to be a moment um, and a real wake-up call for this government that we can no longer rely on foreign oil and gas, which is unstable um, and contravenes our, our values. But what do oil and gas have to do with the war in Ukraine? Will banning Russian fossil fuels really make Putin reconsider? And what does all this mean for soaring energy bills in the UK? What has happened in Ukraine has exacerbated the situation. But the rises in energy, heating oil, water, council tax, broadband and mobiles, food, national insurance were all in place before Ukraine. Well, it seems to me that the most sensible uh, way to reduce your exposure to, to Russian gas or indeed the global gas market is to use less gas. Um, there are green technologies that are increasingly cheap and actually some already are cost effective. I'm looking at the cost of offshore wind now, miraculously, offshore wind per unit of energy is now cheaper than gas. People who are arguing for more fossil fuel licences aren't the friends of people in poverty in the UK. What we need to have more energy sovereignty, to have more support for, for people who are struggling, is a renewable approach, a decarbonisation approach that can bring down people's bills. Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, are fossil fuels funding the war in Ukraine? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. This week, I'm really happy to be joined down the line by Svetlana Romanko, Ukrainian environmental lawyer, climate activist and strategist and spokesperson for Stand with Ukraine. Hi, Svetlana. Hi. Thank you for having me here today. No, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It's really brilliant to have you. And I'm also really excited to be joined down the line by Tessa Khan, founder and director of Uplift and returning friend of the pod. Hi, Tessa. Hi, sure. Delighted to be back and especially to be joining Svetlana in this conversation. Absolutely. Let's let's get started then, because there's, there's going to be a lot to talk about. So, Svetlana, I want to come to you first. You're part of something called Stand with Ukraine, which is calling on the world to end global fossil fuel addiction that feeds Putin's war machine. So could you tell us what is Stand with Ukraine and how did you become involved? Uh, yes, of course, sure. That was the second day of, of war in Ukraine. It was February 25th, late afternoon. And I uh, started organizing around uh, some solidarity actions with Ukraine being a part of global climate movement and having uh, also a role within the Ukrainian climate activism and uh, sometimes science. So I decided to put my hands where my heart is 
and try to help my country whenever I can at this very peak moment. So that's why I started organizing and uh, called for a global solidarity and organized the first call where a lot of uh, organizations were attending to. And we drafted a statement, which has now been uh, supported by almost 700 organizations from over 60 countries of the world. And the signings are still coming and signatures are still joining uh, from various organizations, global, local, national. And we are very welcome this global solidarity and the call to action. I will just uh, tell you a bit more on substantial part of the statement and the language and the tones that we have been using because it's, Still very emerging issue and very relevant issue for us all, not only to end this urgency of Putin's war against Ukraine and his war machine that is uh, being fueled by fossil fuel finance for some time long being provided to Putin from different countries of the world, especially from the EU, but it's also necessarily to stop climate change. And for me, it's a very deep interconnection between Putin's war and between the climate change and climate crisis that we all are facing with. Until Putin invaded Ukraine, no one could believe that it happens. I am, as Ukrainian, we've been warned by foreign intelligence services. We could not even believe that this invasion and this war could ever happen in 21st century, as many, probably many of us who live in democratic countries on their own. And the climate crisis is, is a very similar. And as our ally, my good friend, a Ukrainian famous climate scientist, Svetlana Krakowska said that human-induced climate change and the war against Ukraine are, have the same roots, which are fossil fuels. So uh, we have a unique opportunity to end them both. And how we behave in this war against Putin, because it's not only Ukrainian war. I've been hearing from many people, so people all over the world, different people, different backgrounds, that they feel very much united and they all feel a bit Ukrainian this time, because that's a very critical break of many international laws abusing human rights. And of course, this is the dominance of fossil fuels and dependency of fossil fuels. So that's a model of how we should act as a humanity and how we should express the solidarity towards a climate crisis. Because uh, what is essential for our statement, stand with Ukraine statement, that we are calling to political deputies, to governments, to financial institutions, and to all organizations immediately stop doing any business, to stop all trade with fossil fuels from Russia and all investments, to divest all assets from Russian companies, which are also known as Putin 100. We, of course, would like to stop this war machine, absolutely, but it's not only that what means the most. It means the most that we all and all fossil fuels globally uh, just being intended to do so and not just replace the import of oil and gas from Russia with something from Qatar or from Venezuela, for example, which uh, some governments are trying to negotiate respectively. We have a lot more work to do. As just an example from relevant reports and sources, including the IEA report, uh, it says that um, European Union imported 140 billion cubic meters for a year as a whole. And now European leaders have promised us uh, to replace 24 billions of gas 
with renewable energy sources. Just simple comparison shows us that it's not enough, it's not sufficient, and we request for more. With Avas and many other global organizations, we've launched a petition, which is already about 900,000 signatures collected so far. And these letters and petition and our letter have been delivered to every European leader as it has been delivered in the U.S. a bit earlier, and uh, we still wait for a more bold response from them. Thank you so much, Svetlana. There was so much really crucial stuff in, in what you said there. I think one thing in particular, this kind of connection between fossil fuels kind of fueling, as you say, Putin's war machine and the climate crisis just feels like such an important insight at this moment. And kind of as you touched upon, you know, we know that the EU has spent over 11 million euros on Russian oil and gas just since the start of the war. And it kind of it is impossible to overlook the extent to which that, of course, is is uh, fueling the the war machine, as you say. Tessa, just to come to you on this, sometimes the media says that we're under threat from Putin turning off the gas supply to Europe. What do you think that that would actually involve if we were to withdraw support in that way? And is it likely that that might happen? Well, I think you've had, you know, commitments certainly from governments like the UK already and the US to ban or phase out quickly Russian oil and gas imports. And, you know, that is unquestionably morally the right thing to do and would have a material effect on Putin's ability to fund the war. And, you know, if the rebuttal from governments who are afraid of doing that is that, you know, it's not possible for them to find another way to power our energy systems in the absence of Russian oil and gas, you know, they're just not being imaginative enough or, you know, they're not willing really to take the kind of transformative step forwards that this moment really calls for. And if this crisis and Russia's invasion of Ukraine isn't enough of a wake-up call to really clarify all of the incredibly toxic and destructive consequences of our reliance on fossil fuels, you know, you've got to ask yourselves what it's going to take. So I think increasingly governments, and we have seen the UK government, for example, agreeing to phase out Russian oil and gas imports over the next year, you know, realise that that's absolutely the right thing to do and, and anything short of that is in a defensible position. So what are those kind of more imaginative avenues for them to substitute Russian oil and gas in your opinion? And also if we were to, as you say, phase out buying Russian oil and gas, what impact would that have on the Russian economy? Would it be something that is kind of significant enough to really put a a spanner in the works for Putin? Or, Or would it be a kind of, you know, I've heard some people argue that it would actually be a relatively minor blip because they would continue to be able to have their trading relationships with China and other global forces that perhaps would prop them up. So, I mean, in, in the UK, we're actually not dependent on Russian oil and gas in any particularly significant way. So Russian gas imports only made up about 4% of the UK's total gas supply in the last year. And on oil, it only made up about 8% of the total amount of oil and oil products that we use. So there's been plenty of analysis to show all of the ways in which we could very quickly bridge that gap. So just by, for example, bringing on stream renewable energy projects that have already received planning approval, that would be enough to 
make up for the amount that we're losing in terms of Russian gas. Um, There's also been lots of really compelling analysis by NEF and ECIU and others that show that if we were just to increase our focus on energy efficiency and roll out, you know, insulation, for example, at scale, to the extent that we've done before, by the way, I mean, in 2012, the UK government insulated about a million homes over the course of the year, that those measures on their own would be enough to compensate for what we're missing in terms of, you know, Russian gas imports within a few years. So it's eminently doable. And not only is it, as I said, clearly morally the right thing to do to isolate the Russian government, but it would have all sorts of other really tangible material benefits for for people in the UK in terms of lower energy bills, warmer homes, you know, more comfortable homes and so on. Because of course, even before Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a big conversation happening about the real cost of our dependency on gas in particular because of the massive increase in domestic energy bills, which has been caused by the global increase in the wholesale price of gas. So I think this is, you know, a really live conversation at the moment and there are no shortage of solutions that people are bringing to the table in terms of alternatives to our current dependency on gas in particular. That's really helpful, Tessa. Thank you. And Svetlana, did you want to come in on that question around how it would actually impact the Russian economy if we were to pull the demand? Yeah, absolutely. I can. And uh, being often visiting Russia in the past, um, because I've been uh, working for some regional purpose, I can definitely say that not only 60% of Russian budget is based on what they import and what they sell, I mean, in terms of fossil fuels, but they also use that massively to build their political pressure and enslave, I would even say, just enslave some countries which are in the high dependence of from Russian oil and gas. This could end Russian dominance and Nazism they expressed towards other nations forever. And uh, I believe because when your main source of income, of profit, is being taken off due to all these strict economical sanctions, and I mean due to full embargo of every country in the world and to isolate Russia and to divest all uh, assets which are still staying in um, some uh, Russian companies, as Gazprom, Rosneft, and all others, it could make Russia a stranded because Russian stock exchange is not being open and functioning since February 27th, if I am not mistaken. So it means when it just opens, all prices are breaking down line uh, significantly and Russia is facing its default and could not able to continue with this war in Ukraine, as we believe. But at the same time, I do realize that financial flows to Russia are not being carded in full, and especially from the U.S., as you've said, as you've just mentioned, this huge number. And everyday contract brings a lot of money to Russia to send their troops and uh, destroy Ukrainian territory. You know, one, one small fact, as an environmentalist, I cannot tolerate that. One third of my country of natural reserves has been inevitably destroyed by Russian troops, and uh, this is a big conflict between uh, social, economic, and, uh, of course, environmental, sustainable development triangle so far for me. As I said, the whole country's stranded asset uh, could stop Russia and could stop Putin immediately from just enable the war machine to function and being fueled by uh, oil, gas, and coal as well. And uh, regarding China, I would like to mention that we are working with a group of international activists 
to send some letters to Chinese government because they, what's happening in Ukraine, we believe that maybe they will understand the huge risk uh, that Russia is facing under those sanctions and actually they won't invest and they won't buy um, very cheap Russian assets right for a moment after they defaulted. Yes, this is the danger, but it can be met, I believe. And um, it won't be easy to transit to another economic model, another than being based on fossil fuels. But we have to do it once and forever. And of course, we might uh, we might experience electricity blackouts, factory shutdowns, and capricious energy pl- prices, as we see for now. But I think that we all should understand that it's uh, not about when; it's just about how and how we meet all those difficulties and challenges all together. And actually, all reports I've seen uh, towards renewable energy transition provides us with very clear numbers that if we just triple our investments into renewable energy, and I'm having in mind that we need to divest from fossil fuel energy before. So the world already has enough of renewable energy potential. And if we just increase finance to that renewable energy potential and um, actually agree that Fossil fuels have become a weapon of mass destruction and we need fossil fuel non-proliferation. So therefore, how we can fasten this transition? We're definitely, we're going to come circle back to that in a second, Svetlana, because I want to go a bit further into this longer term question of ending dependency on fossil fuels. But let's come back to the short term points that you were mentioning there about the potential um, fallout of this. So in the past couple of episodes, we've explored how millions of, of us are struggling to afford life's essentials, partly down to soaring energy bills. And this week, NEF published research, which found that nearly half of all children will be living in families that are unable to afford the cost of living from this spring. So coming to you, Tessa, if we only get 4% of our gas from Russia, then why is the war in Ukraine still likely to affect energy prices in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, uncertainty around what the war in Ukraine will do to global gas demand and to the demand for alternative sources of gas. So, you know, there was already, as you know, an escalation in wholesale gas prices starting from uh, late last year related to various dynamics around demand. um, And this increases the volatility and uncertainty and, and market kind of uncertainty in relation to that. So that's, you know, unfortunately, even though we, for example, produce gas domestically in the UK through the North Sea, because gas is traded on global and regional markets, it's those markets that end up determining the price of gas, which is why we've seen such massive spikes recently. So it's really, you know, just about that kind of uncertainty in in those dynamics and ultimately the market responding to that. Uh, okay, so it's more complicated than just, you know, what the supply is and what we're getting from them. It's more about the way, as you say, that prices are set in this broader global market system that we're impacted by. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the gas that we extract domestically, you know, we don't pay a price that's set for that domestically. We pay the global price for that. So you don't have any control when a commodity is traded globally on the price that you pay for that. That's subject to all of those global demand and supply dynamics. 
Okay. See, these are exactly the kind of things I think, uh, why we do this podcast, because it's so helpful, I think, to, to hear the nuance in the, in the conversation like that, because often I think in conversations I've had around this recently and, and with others, people just don't really understand that. They kind of think, well, if we're only getting 4%, then why is my energy bill going up so much? So yes, more of that. Very helpful. Let's come to the longer term point. So of course, Svitlana, as you've been saying, Stand With Ukraine isn't just demanding an end to Russian fossil fuel imports. Now it's also calling for this rapid phase out of fossil fuels. And you've spoken to this extensively already, but I guess my question is, if this is something that Stand With Ukraine is, is working towards as a longer term goal, will it take too long to have an impact on the war right now? I do think that the best time we can only be suggesting for, for that transition is right now. And um, uh, what I would say, stand with Ukraine. Yes, there is a, just we can only summarize the first phase. It went through just uh, with uh, Biden and the U.S. commitment to ban all new investments from the U.S. into Russian fossil fuels. And our President Zelensky tweeted that it strikes uh, exactly in the heart of the Putin's war machine as well. And U.K. governmental leadership saying that they can also end their dependency on fossil fuels. But I think there is like elephant in the room missing that there are still huge amounts of money in the fossil fuels and it won't be so easy to stand firm to end the dependency on fossil fuels. But I think until we move the main banks and especially those who are just having huge assets still in Russian companies and in many others, for example, in Total Energies and all other companies which are providing the electricity from fossil fuels all over the world and especially from Europe. So I, I am speaking now about such as specific banks as the Unicredit Group. All of them are mostly European and Lloyds of London is, um, is a UK-based one. Like in general, uh, 120 billions of funds invested into Russian companies. So before we move all those big stakeholders, financial stakeholders, and make them act, and before we move some governments act, which will be based on the financial move as well, we cannot expect the really transformation of policies and phasing out fossil fuels. Because what is going next after phasing out fossil fuels and banning all new explorations and ending all explorations of fossil fuels is a just transition which has been also a question for many discussions. And this is a question of how we model this just transition for everyone. And in terms of renewables, I would also say that we should also pay attention to some technologies which already exist, for example, a heat pumps, for example, insulation of our houses, renovation, as is very relevant for the European New Deal renovation of houses. There is very top-down steps which uh, governments should take, but there are also the things that we can do and that we can take ourselves. And some of them are, are those that I've just mentioned under that, that governmental leadership is needed just to make this essential move to clean energy and low carbon technologies, the pace and the scale required. And um, the war in Ukraine only served to underline the need to accelerate this transition to the kind of a low carbon economy and uh, Maybe uh, I was also thinking that a global register on fossil fuels and fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty in the broader term could help us to keep those fossil fuels in the ground 
and uh, make a multilateral agreement of not being uh, using them in any country or region, not only uh, specifically in the UK or in the uh, European Union, but also elsewhere, as for example, in uh, African countries or Latin American countries, where are the conflicts which are not the same as, of course, the Ukrainian war, but at the same time, they are quite significant and poignant and long-term conflicts, which we uh, were not able to tackle very well so far. So it sounds like it's a con- it's kind of useful to talk about renewable energy and energy efficiency as part of a kind of a broader en- energy security strategy rather than just as a climate issue. That's really helpful. Tessa, could you tell us about any positive steps that the UK government is taking towards cutting our use of fossil fuels as a result of the war in Ukraine? I know Johnson is planning to unveil a new energy strategy in a fortnight. Is that going to be the answer to all of our prayers? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not uh, no, I shouldn't say that I'm, I'm not optimistic because I think there's been a pretty unified call from, you know, lots of groups within UK society that makes it clear that, you know, this is a moment when we've got to make a commitment to phasing out our dependency on fossil fuels. And so far we've heard some positive noises insofar as I think the Conservative Party are looking at ways of expediting approval of more onshore wind, which has been, you know, a notoriously difficult process that one resident objecting, you know, to a planning approval for an onshore wind turbine, you know, that would be sufficient to to bring the whole thing to a halt. So, you know, overriding some of those incredibly onerous restrictions that have stopped us from scaling up renewable energy supply and, you know, in particular wind in a country that has some of the most abundant wind resources in the world, you know, that's an, that's an obvious step forward that the government could take and that it seems to be contemplating. I think, though, what we've got to be really careful about in this moment is that the government doesn't take an all of the above approach, you know, like more renewables as well as more fossil fuels domestically, which I think would be a huge mistake insofar as it would continue to lock us in to reliance on fossil fuels and it would act as a huge break on the transition and the transformation that we need to see in terms of our reliance, you know, within homes and buildings and energy efficiency and so on, you know, if we want to be ambitious about this and really make sure that we don't continue to finance murderous regimes in other parts of the world. So, yeah, you know, I think we've got to really be steadfast in challenging the idea that domestic oil and gas production is an answer to this crisis in particular, but, you know, to people's energy affordability concerns because it's just categorically not going to help Yeah, that was my next question was, you know, over the last few weeks, quite a few right wing commentators, backbench conservative MPs and think tanks with shady funding, they've all been calling for the UK to drill more oil and gas in order to reduce reliance on Russia and cut energy bills. So is that basically what you were just saying, Tessa, that that's not the solution here and we can't be uh, fooled? Exactly. Yeah, it's not the solution, you know, for a number of reasons. The first is that, you know, because as you know, the thing that's driving up our energy bills is the wholesale price of gas. So people are saying that we should be opening up new gas fields in the North Sea in the UK to pump more gas into people's homes. Um, But first of all, 
there isn't that much gas in the North Sea. So we know that, for example, of the sort of 30 new oil and gas fields that are up for approval in the UK in the next few years, 75% of the resource in those fields is actually oil. And that oil is overwhelmingly exported because it's not suitable for UK refineries. So it's not the kind of stuff that's going to go into your cars or really be useful for industrial purposes in the UK. So basically, most of what's in the North Sea is oil that's exported. But the second thing is that it's not our oil and gas, you know, insofar as it's, you know, private and public multinational companies that are the ones who hold the licenses in the UK. So that includes Gazprom, it includes the Iranian oil, you know, state-owned oil company and a bunch of other quite shady private equity-backed private companies who will just sell whatever they're extracting from the UK to the highest bidder. And we actually saw that in September last year and October last year when gas prices first started to increase, that the exports of gas from the UK also increased because they could get a better price for the gas that they were extracting here elsewhere. So just because it's, you know, within the UK doesn't mean that it belongs to us in any meaningful way. And then the final thing that I'd point to is just the timelines for actually operationalizing oil and gas fields in the UK is pretty long compared to the crisis that we're currently in. If what you're looking to do, for example, is bridge the gap left by Russian imports, like the UK government is currently considering issuing new oil and gas licenses. And the average timeline from first discovery of oil and gas in the UK to actually extracting it out of the ground is 28 years. So that's going to take us through to 2050, at which point we're supposed to be net zero. And it's certainly not going to, you know, increase the availability of oil and gas in the UK in the short term, you know, which is what ostensibly we need. So it's really just not a solution. And all it will do is, as I say, you know, lock us into dependency on projects that have multi-decade lifetimes, and it'll distract us from the need to rapidly transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. That makes so much sense. I'm just like, why don't they just, why don't you just, why don't they just listen to you? You just go in, you say <laughs> that, and then they're like, I know. I'm like, Tessa knows the answer. Bloody hell. Svitlana, what, what do you think about that? Are you, are you of the same mind that these arguments kind of tend to rely on the idea that massive multinational fossil fuel companies will just be happy to sell their products to us on the cheap? Um, and that's absurd. Oh, yes, they will be happy to increase exploration and sell us products as cheap or even pro bono, but just explore it as much as we need. But in fact, and actually, uh, those fossil fuel giants and big oil, they are actually are accountable for these high, high spiking prices and they are profiting on these prices for many, many years. And actually, I don't support this idea and I call it uh, some kind of peace washing when these companies which plan to increase explorations and profit based on them try to put all the weight of those, of those price on the consumers. Uh, which are uh, the ordinary people, just it's not fair because consumers are often not being given a choice and governments should provide them the w- with a choice, of course, with the ability of moral choice. As we all see what dependence on fossil fuels is bringing us to and uh, if our consumption uh, finances dictators like Putin and finances such a horrific war, a dreadful 
uh, war impacts as we do have in Ukraine in the nearest future. Those big oils and other companies will accommodate the huge profits and the consumers will have to pay whatever they, whatever they will be told to pay. The only way, and actually the fossil fuel industry and its allies are exploiting the crisis in Ukraine and war in Ukraine to push for more oil and gas development everywhere everywhere, no difference uh, on the region. And um, of course, they are aiming to increase fracking and liquid natural gas exports. But of course, we, we have to be mindful that building new gas infrastructure will take years to come online and won't help the current crisis we are facing. So they are trying to have some time for doing business as usual. I mean, those fossil fuel giants and companies, they try to persuade us that we need to not just temporarily rely on them again to provide and buy their oil and gas. But in fact, they are trying to negotiate with us to get more long investments into fossil fuels and to get more and more profit on that and making us dependent more and more with no chance to turn on to the green development. Because I would like to remind us as well about the fossil fuel subsidies, which are paid many governments still, and they still feed the fossil fuel industry in many ways. And they aren't behind of a green deal, as Europeans also say, are saying, because not every country, even within the European Union or beyond, has refused to subsidize the fossil fuel industry. So, of course, global dependence on fossil fuels further empowering Russia and damaging the climate will be exponentially increasing in this case. And I think it's very critical, going back to war and Putin's uh, dominance on fossil fuels and his war machine fueled by uh, oil, gas and coal. I think that we are now rebuilding and um, reconsiderating the model of our world in general, how our democracy look like, how our human rights are being protected from governments. And all governments, believe me, all governments are now watching, and especially China and all other governments are trying to measure what limits, what borders they can or cannot just overcome with these particular societies. And it's very essential for us uh, to stand on as a humanity right now and staying all together and opposing the fossil fuel industry and not allowing to get our buy-in with uh, just maybe some lower prices or good promises, which will never happen to be a good actions uh, relating to cutting fossil fuel dependencies and phasing out fossil fuels. And we should not accept this. We should not accept these net zero pledges, which are another way of saying we would like to do a business of, as usual from different companies and from different and sometimes from different governments. I mean, it seems from this conversation just so urgent that, as you say, we don't let this become an opportunity for the people with the vested interests that we've talked about to take advantage of this crisis, to push for more and more dangerous fossil fuels. I know that, you know, this week, Nigel Farage, who's one of the chief proponents of the arguments that we're talking about, said that he wanted a referendum on the government's net zero policy and the return of fracking and coal mining in the UK. Obviously, Brexit started as a fringe issue and ended with us leaving the EU entirely. Tessa, how worried do you think we should be? And, and what can we do to keep the frame in the right place on this rather than letting it slide into the danger zone that we've been talking about? Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think we should be naive about how shrewd, you know, Nigel Farage and co are as political campaigners, given the success that they had with the 
pro-Brexit campaign. But that said, I think one thing that is an important difference between this context, the kind of climate policy and net zero context and that context, is the massive amount of public support for climate policy and the significant, you know, very substantial levels of concern that people up and down the UK have about climate change and whether or not the government's doing enough to address it. And recent polling, you know, even on this specific question about what the response should be to increasing gas prices, for example, has shown that people recognise that we need to increase our support and reliance on renewables and move away from fossil fuels. So, There certainly isn't that kind of public naivety or lack of awareness for that campaign, I think, to tap into this time. But again, you know, as I say, I don't think we should be at all complacent about it. And so I think what it's really incumbent upon the government to do in particular, obviously, um, as the principal defender and, you know, implementer of the of the net zero and decarbonisation agenda, but, you know, that I think it's incumbent upon all of us who care about this is to constantly make clear what all of those very tangible, material, immediate benefits are of reducing our dependency on fossil fuels. And as I said, that includes making our energy bills more affordable as NEF's, you know, brilliant Great Homes Upgrade campaign talks about, you know, it's about warmer homes, cheaper heating, you know, better outcomes from a health and educational perspective. It's it's really, you know, about improving the quality of life for people across the UK. And those are all, you know, not even taking into consideration the benefits of averting climate catastrophe. So we're on really strong ground, I think, in terms of the really clear advantages that decarbonisation and rapidly shifting away from fossil fuels offers us as a society. And we've got to, I think, be incredibly vocal and consistent and unified in really, you know, amplifying that. Thanks so much, Tessa. And to both of you for being with me on this podcast. I've learned so much and I think it's been a really invaluable opportunity to just add a really crucial perspective here, which I haven't seen so much in the coverage of of what's happening. So thank you both so much. I want to come to you first, Svitlana Romanko. If people want to find out more about your work and support uh, Stand With Ukraine and your other initiatives, how can they do that? I will be sharing links with you right now to our web pages where everyone can join and contribute to such a campaigning. And of course, please join public campaigns that we or our partners, because there is a huge range of partners and in the UK especially as well. So uh, I, I can name the Bulga uh, Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, who are also our partners, Global Gas and Oil Network, who are our partners and the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which are working in every country just to keep their reserves in the ground. So please to join our public calls, follow social media, which I will also be happy to share with you. And thank you so much for opportunity to be here with you today. Thank you so much, Svitlana. We'll make sure to include uh, those links in the show notes, but just um, in case folks aren't able to access them for whatever reason, we have www.with-ukraine.org and we also have putin100.org forward slash hashtag why. And then we have reclaimfinance.org as well. So they'll all be in the show notes and do take action, get in touch um, with us and we can put you in touch with Svitlana directly. Tessa Khan, same question. Thank you so much for being with us. If people want to find out more about your work and get involved, uh, how can they do that? 
Thanks so much, Aisha. Um, so if people are interested in stopping oil and gas companies and the UK government using the war in Ukraine as an excuse to increase oil and gas extraction in the UK, I suggest you check out the Stop Cambo social media channels, which is the campaign that we coordinated against the Cambo oil field, but which we're using to continue to mobilise people against North Sea oil and gas extraction. And we'll be kind of expanding the scope of that campaign and, and keeping it updated in the coming weeks. And I'm also frequently ranting about domestic oil and gas policy uh, at my personal Twitter account. And the handle for that is Tessa Khan. I can highly recommend those rants. I found them very educational. <laughs> um, so thank you, Tessa. Um, that is it for today's New Economics podcast. Lovely listener. I hope you're feeling as fired up and enlightened as I am. We will be back in two weeks. But if you've enjoyed this episode, which I hope you have, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welch. I'm still Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.